0: Hey everyone, over the course of the next few weeks, we're taking the time to highlight our top episodes over the last couple of years. Whether you're an avid listener or a new listener of the podcast, chances are you may have missed one of these game-changing interviews. I'll see you back in 2024 with all new episodes of the Behind Her Empire podcast. I hope you enjoy this one. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. For the past year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I wanna welcome this week's guest, Melanie Strong, to our show today. Melanie is a founding partner of Next Ventures, a VC firm she co-founded with Lance Armstrong that focuses on building the next generation of sports and health and wellness brands. Melanie is a lifelong runner and started her career as a journalist and was always fascinated with sports. When a position came up at Nike, she recognized she didn't have the right pedigree, she didn't have an MBA or brand experience, but decided to still go for it and her hard work paid off. She spent most of her career building high-performing teams all over the world and held positions like VP of Global Brand Marketing for Nike Women to the GM of Nike Skateboarding. After 18 years at Nike, Melanie had the opportunity to break into the world of venture capital. As a first time investor and fund founder, Melanie left an incredibly stable career to create something that was completely outside her comfort zone, but was more aligned with her values and overall mission in life. We'll talk to Melanie about how she overcame imposter syndrome in many points of her career, even to this day, and how to take that first step outside your comfort zone and face your fears when going after your dreams or goals that you have. We also get her perspective around what she looks for when investing in founders and how to authentically build a brand in the environment we're in today. Welcome to the show, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited. So our mutual friend, shout out Ronit for connecting us. She's spoken the world of you. I'm so excited to have you on. You're an inspiration with your entire career journey and your new career. I think so many women are going to love hearing your story so i can't wait to jump into it and before we go into your story i'd love to kind of start with a high level question that actually stood out when i was doing prep with you is you know you mentioned in your 20s you lacked confidence and you were often modeling success based on what others defined success as and it really wasn't until your 30s that you stopped wanting to be somebody else and you really tapped into who you are. So I'd love to get your thoughts on you know, any tips or advice you have for women listening today when it comes to just being more comfortable in their own skin and owning who they are as a person.
1: Sure. I love that question. And I think about it a lot relative to founders and some of the signaling that we look for relative to how healthy and successful founders might be in running her or his business. Because that level of self-awareness takes work and if I don't get the sense that a founder is willing to do that work because it's messy and it makes you uncomfortable and it's not pretty, that's a flag that that founder might not be willing to understand when she has hit maybe the threshold of her own abilities when it's time to ask for help. And I certainly made all those mistakes. You know, I grew up around lots of especially in the sports space, lots of really successful people who tended to be very charismatic and very outgoing. And a lot of my mentors early in my career embodied that archetype. You know, I grew up at Nike, had spent some time previous to Nike doing other great jobs that helped really form who I am. And I'm happy to talk about those, but you can probably imagine what the Nike culture is like. Yes. And I came there in my mid-20s with no MBA, no previous experience in corporate, And everyone was so smart and they were funny and they lit up a room and they had strong opinions immediately about things that were taking me a long time to process. And so I spent a lot of time trying those archetypes on, like I wanted to be the funny one. I wanted to be the charismatic one. Sometimes I just wanted to be like the introvert creative. That is so not me. I think it (laughs) took me a long time, too long to just come to grips with who I am and just like love that person and be confident that that was enough. And I think the big turning point for me in that work was having people around me who were honest with me about that. Like, hey, that didn't really feel authentic to you. Like, I know that's not you. What were you doing there? I think that I call it my circle of trust. I've been lucky to have great people, mostly women, but also some great men around me my whole life who I trust to be real with me in those moments And I had a lot of that in my 20s, a lot of people just saying, what's going on? Like, why are you trying to be someone you're not? And so I still do that work today because venture capital, I'm three years into this new career, is dominated by a certain archetype. And I don't look like that archetype. I don't have the pedigree of that archetype. And it's taken me a while to get comfortable in my own skin in this chapter of my career.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much I want to unpack there. And I think, you know, looking at just your story, I think being in certain situations where you're trying different hats and you're like, you know what, this doesn't feel right. Getting that feedback, being in a new situation, knowing this doesn't feel right. It kind of helps you with that self-awareness really gravitate. Like who am I as a person? What feels more comfortable? What allows me to shine more? And, you know, talking about the founders, I feel like I always joke that starting a business, it's all about personal growth. I mean, every single day I am turning into a completely different person. And I feel like a lot of the success, especially having all this amazing women like yourself on the podcast is, you know, outside of execution is like, is your mind right? Are you, like you said, do you have that level of awareness? Are you always looking to get better and take that ego aside when you're building something? So I think there's so much for us to unpack. I can't wait to go into this interview, but it's really powerful. And I feel like you truly ultimately shine once you kind of tap into what gets you excited, like who you are as a person. And that's when you look to inspire people. And I am just so impressed by your journey. And we'll talk about VC and the archetypes there that you've had to kind of tackle yourself and continue to. So I want to start with your upbringing. You know, you've mentioned you never thought in a million years you'd be in sports and fitness, and you actually credit a lot of your career moves to your family and your admiration for female athletes. So I'd love to just hear more about that. I can't say that I grew up in a very fit or active or athletic
1: family. I grew up for a period of time with a single-parent father who was an academic, very intellectual, still an inspiration for me. I actually look back at some of his work in the human performance space and I'm like, dad, why didn't we like combine forces, right? I didn't know that you were doing all this great research. And, but I did always grow up with a really deep and meaningful understanding of how lucky I am to have the things I have. So my little sister was born with cerebral palsy. She's eight years younger than me. She's, her name is Marilyn. She's a beautiful person. We also have a young brother and the three of us have learned how to have a really normal sibling relationship. But when you grow up with someone with severe physical and mental disabilities, you just have a different perspective on things. And I think as the oldest, especially, I took a lot of that experience to heart, watching how hard it was for Marilyn to have a peer group, to have an, like a, just a normal, if there is such a thing school experience, like going to prom, which she did. But everything was sort of different because of her physical challenges. And so I've never taken that for granted. And I I found myself, I guess, athletically through running. So I ran cross country in high school and college and I sort of appreciated the mindfulness part of running. I would have never said that when I was a teenager, but I look back now and I'm like, "Oh, I know what I was doing there." Like I was really feeling my power in my body and in my mind on these runs. I love being outside. And so that has fueled my journey throughout my life. You know, I think I I come from a very service-oriented family. And so I spent my first few years out of high school and college in that space. I was a first grade teacher. That was my very first job out of college.
0: Oh, I did not know
1: that. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny because when I tell people that, especially people who have worked with me for a
0: while, they're like, oh, yeah, I see that. (laughs) It's a compliment. Like you're very calm. You speak well. You have patience. You're caring. I love that.
1: (laughs) You know what? I spent probably 10 years in my corporate life pretending that that wasn't part of my story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it didn't match the story of the people who I thought were successful in the space. And now I talk about it all the time. Like I have a journalism degree. You know, I taught in the Philadelphia public school system. I was a writer, investigative reporter. Like all those things now make sense to me and because they have given me strengths that I'm really proud of now, I can talk about that that part of my life with confidence. But I spent a lot of time like pretending that my life somehow started when I took my first fancy job, when I moved to Portland in 2002 to work at Nike. And, you know, I started entry level there. It wasn't like I took some fancy job, but I wish if I could have done things over then again, then in terms of telling my story, especially to like younger women in terms of modeling, that it's okay to have a different pattern of life. And that actually that makes you really interesting.
0: Yeah, I I love that. And that was actually a question I wanted to bring up because like you said, you know, the typical archetype of someone who is working at Nike, you know, they typically have a standard pedigree, they go to great schools, and what I love so much about your story is you didn't come from that that necessarily that background, right? I mean, even for me, I remember I didn't go to an Ivy League school. And when I worked at J.P. Morgan, I remember the recruiter said, so you didn't go to an Ivy League school, like why should we hire you? So I'm very passionate and I ended up getting the job. Don't get me wrong. And I love J.P. Morgan. I'm not knocking, but that was a unique question. But what I love and what I'm really passionate about is women and people who have a completely different background, really making the mark and getting that job or starting that company who you wouldn't necessarily think would fit that you know, quote unquote stereotype. So looking at you, right, you talked about it, you were a first grade teacher. How did you get that job into Nike? I mean, what was the path? Because I feel like it could really inspire a lot of women who are listening who might think, you know, they don't have the right credentials to get that dream job of theirs, because I highly disagree with that. I think it's, everybody has a potential to go for that dream job of theirs. hmm.
1: It was an awesome woman. So I was actually on assignment for Runners World magazine and at the Boston Marathon in maybe 2001. And I was doing a story about this amazing Olympian named Joan Benoit Samuelson. And she was the first woman, American woman, to run the first women's Olympic marathon in LA in 1984. And so I was old enough to remember Joanie running and winning that first Olympic marathon, watching it on TV. She ran into the Coliseum. Like for anyone who hasn't ever watched any of that footage, go look it up. It's spectacular. And so... You know, I was I maybe had 30 minutes with Joni at the Prudential Center in Boston 2 days before the marathon to interview her about her her life and and what she was working on now. And I spent all day with Joni. She could not get rid of me. <laughs> I thought she was fascinating. She was so outspoken, so confident. And by the end of the day, she's like, "You know, you should really look at at working at Nike." And I'll be honest, like I'd never been a big Nike fan. I was more of an ASICS sometimes adidas runner i'm embarrassed to say (laughs) you know and then i didn't really like the west coast wasn't speaking to me i'd never been to oregon she's like you're gonna love it there's such great people there and so her encouragement to apply for a job that on paper i had no business applying for Mm. was really the start of of that career she didn't open any doors for me in terms of favors like i had to earn that first job on my own and that was fine. I actually preferred it that way. But knowing that she thought I might be happy at Nike and because I admired her so much was really the motivation for applying for my first job. And I'll be forever grateful because I did not have the experience. I think at the time it was a digital producer job for NikeRunning.com, and they were looking for someone with an MBA and someone with eight to 10
0: years of brand experience. You gotta love that, right? all the <laughs> job positions. You're like, like, what? How does that, does that person even exist for real? Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I had actually had applied for a similar job first within the Nike Women Org and, and didn't, didn't get the job. And my boyfriend at the time was now my husband was like, uh-uh, next interview you get, we're flying you out. Cause you just, you do better in person. Great self-awareness or awareness from my my partner there on that front. And so when I got my second interview, I flew out, met the team in person. And I don't know that I nailed the interview because at Nike, I think it's like this in a lot of corporate environments. Like you have this big panel. There's a lot of, again, like intimidating people. You're sitting in a boardroom. You're on one side. You've got eight distinguished individuals interviewing the other side. Like I don't think I shined in that moment necessarily, but I part of the process is going for a run with my hiring manager.
0: Oh, cool.
1: Yeah, I don't think it was legal or formal in nature, but he was like, hey, do you have your running stuff? And I did, and so we went for a run around the Nike campus. And I think that helped, just connecting that way. But if Joan hadn't entered my life at that moment and given me the courage to go for that job, I would have never had that career.
0: Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use, we make it every List for anyone to get started today, it's called BIA and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about BIA and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BIAWellness.com and that's spelled B E E Y A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get ten dollars off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening, and now let's get back to today's episode. Incredible. I mean, and that takes me to, you know, Joan has played such a big role in your career, you know, throughout Nike, through your career transition. Like, I'd love for you to speak to the power and importance of just networking and mentorship. It is so important. You know, people ask me now,
1: what gave me the courage to join the VC space? And one of the reasons why I think I will be good, and we joked before the interview started officially that like you really need to talk to me in five years when I know whether I'm any good at this or not. But I love it, and so far, so good. And the reason why I think I can be a good investor, a good advisor, a good board member if I earn the right to take those types of roles is because I love people. I do love people. I'm curious about them. I want good people to be successful. I don't have a lot of ego in the game. I'm not at that point in my career, right, where I'm looking to establish a name for myself. That's not why I'm doing this. Honestly, if that still drove me, I'd stay at Nike. Yeah. I had a much better shot of fulfilling the ego side of my professional self through the big corporate job, you know, by the time I left I was a very senior executive there. And, and so I think that that helps me be good in this chapter is understanding the power of people and true relationships. And one of the, I think most profound compliments that my teammate and partner Julian has ever given me is, he's like, you know, the quality of the relationships you have in your life are kind of mind blowing. Mm. They aren't transactional like I really think that the people you count as close friends and peers would, would pretty much do anything for you and vice versa. And that means a lot to me because it takes time. It takes being available. It takes time, like really understanding people, like probably screwing up with each other a couple of times and coming out of that, having a little more confidence in one another. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really proud of that community of friends and, and peers and mentors. And I have them all And there's never a point in your career when you don't need mentors. I need them now, frankly, more than I ever have, because this is scary. And I chose the difficult path, which is not to join an established fund, which I had the privilege of having the option to do. I decided to start a fund from scratch. That intellectually was the kind of challenge I was looking for, and I needed all the help. And so... I see many, again, many founders, especially women, try to do things all on their own because I think there's this expectation that that's what people, investors, leaders in the industry are looking for. Uh uh. I love when founders, even on a first call, tell me, I'm not good at this. So I found the person who's best at it and I hired them or they consult or they advise. That tells me that person, again, has done the work on herself to understand what she's great at and what she's not great at. That will ultimately make her a better leader, a better founder. And I think the same for myself. I know and I've done the work. I know that I suck at a whole variety of things. And then I look for people who can complement those gaps in my own experience to help me be smarter and better.
0: I love that. And I think it's like you said, you know, we've said the word ego a lot throughout this interview so far Is like taking that ego out and hiring or surrounding yourself with people who are better at certain things, right? Because collectively, that's how success comes. And that's how you guys can all do well. And I think sometimes people just want to be the main person that, you know, deals with all the problems. But I think so much of creating something amazing is being resourceful, pulling in the right people. And frankly, like similar to you, I love that part of the business. It's so fun to connect with others, see other people in their superpower, right? Like seeing my co-founder, the way she writes and the content abilities she has, I'm like, you are, it's beautiful to see people kind of, you know, shine in what they do best. So, you know, going back to your question, as someone who's in this new position, right, you left your career at Nike, and you're also looking for mentorship, like how do you Find the right advisor or mentor in your life today. You know, maybe that could help women listening who might not have that network just kind of take that first step.
1: I get asked a lot, like, why did you do this? Like, how did you get exposed to VC working at a big publicly traded company? And it it really happened in two ways. The first was that I joined the board of a VC funded company. So I joined the team at Visco, which is an awesome social media startup in Oakland. And ended up meeting what I now know are amazing, well-respected VCs. So James Joaquin at Obvious Ventures, Ryan Sweeney at Excel, Glenn Capital Team. Like I I didn't know any of these people by the way. <laughs> I thought they were great. I knew they were investors. I didn't know about their stories as kind of these heralded VCs. And so getting to know them and then to hear from them that they thought I might be good at this was really encouraging. And so that, that first board role, and we can talk about why women need to be on boards all day, because it wasn't a part of my Nike experience that was incentivized. And I'm still puzzled by that. Why companies don't encourage their leaders, and especially their female leaders, to go out and join boards? Because I think in most cases, it's good for both entities. It's good for the person. She's learning and growing. She's contributing. She's bringing that back to the company she works for. And hopefully there's some great exponential multiplier learning happening there. But I didn't see a lot of my peers at Nike, especially my female peers, going out and taking board roles. Like, And I then looked up and saw a lot of my male peers actually going out and doing that. And it was one of those big epiphanies of like, wow, why are not we doing this as women, opening doors for one another, at least talking about why we're not in that realm of going out and and being on boards and getting that experience. But that was a really critical moment for me of of meeting people who are still in my life. James Joaquin has been an incredible mentor of mine. Him and his wife, frankly, are so uh, experienced and well-respected. And I've gone to them when, for example, we're trying to figure out how to do our first deal or negotiate valuation. And you haven't had that experience and you're making your first few investments as a new emerging fund manager. Those are scary moments. And I needed to know that I could call someone who wasn't gonna make me feel bad about not knowing. And so that was one sort of great moment of creating some important mentors who are still with me today. And then I started doing angel investing. And I'm embarrassed to say I discovered that very late in my life, you know, I had the ability to write some small checks and I was certainly surrounded by great founders, both in Portland and then more broadly in the sports and health and wellness space because I was living and breathing it. And yet the idea that I could write a meaningful check into a founder I believed in and the company she was building, like it just hadn't like been a thing that had been modeled for me. And it certainly wasn't with my peer group at Nike, a thing women were doing. We were not talking about angel investments. Were we talking about donating to nonprofits all day? (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) It's fascinating. We were spending our time and our capital on great nonprofits, which by the way, like continue to do that work. It's important. But writing that same check into a startup seemed to be this, psychological hurdle for myself and for a lot of women I worked with and was friends with at the time. And so that was really puzzling to me. And so I started angel investing. I wanted to meet great female founders who could teach me what kind of investor I wanted to be. And my very first check was in a company called Society9, founded and run by Lynn Lee, who's this brilliant woman here in Portland, who as a petite Vietnamese athlete, couldn't find any boxing or fighting apparel or equipment that like fit her and was made for her. And so she started her own company. And I knew I wanted to be partners with Lynn because she was going to help me because she was so honest, be better. You know, she remove people from her cap table who weren't aligned with her values. Like this was a that. person I was going to learn from. So I was very thoughtful about that first check and every subsequent check because I I wanted to make sure that I was learning and contributing as much as maybe the founder was learning and contributing because I think that relationship is really important. So it was really those two decisions in my life, the board opportunity and angel investing that introduced me to mentors and I would count some of the founders that I've invested with as mentors, because I've never founded anything. What you're building deeply moves me because I don't know if I have the courage to do what you're doing. But I'd love to be a part of it. I'd love to support it in the ways that I can, in the ways that I know how I can be helpful. And so the mentorship should happen in both directions.
0: I think that's a really good point that I want to underscore is that mentorship doesn't always have to be someone who's senior or ahead of you. It could come in so many different aspects, like for you, right? Different founders you're meeting. It could be colleagues in your field. And I think that kind of removes the intimidation around mentorship. Like so many people can serve that role. And it also shouldn't just be one person. It should be a variety of people around you um, that you continue to build in time. And, you know, I actually, I'm curious, you were, you know, going back a little bit, you were at Nike for 18 years, right? You talked about you were incredibly successful. I mean, at the helm of your time there, you know, you talked about how you tapped into the world of startups and how your interest of venture capital came, but What was the biggest motivation for you to take that leap, right? Because we talked about this a little bit before the interview, like imposter syndrome, getting into this industry that is predominantly white male, you know, Stanford alums, consulting backgrounds. So what was that like leaving this huge career to start, you know, to start a fund, not even join a fund to start from scratch as well? It was terrifying.
1: It was. Sometimes it still is. (laughs) Yes. It doesn't go away. You
0: just live in it a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) But I think that that's good
1: because there was not a lot happening in my corporate career at that point that manifested that same energy. I was good at my job. I liked my job, but it wasn't intellectually stimulating. You know, like I could move around. Nike's a big enough company where you can... And I I did all those things, by the way. Like I hopped around different businesses, different geographies. I worked on the World Cup in South Africa. What an amazing experience. But there was a point where like, because it's such a well-run company, like things were just the same. Every season was sort of the same process. And so I was losing that edge and, and, you know, even angel investing, like that little... And I've heard other more experienced investors talk about it like a sport. Like, there is something about meeting a founder who you know has something special, and then doing work and diligence on the company, understanding the consumer problem, understanding the business potential, the financial model behind it. There's like this discovery period that's very exciting and, again, very intellectually stimulating. And I, Started to do that on my own, and I realized like I could actually do this for a career, like this could be my next. So, I credit that angel investing experience with helping me understand why this would feel good. And it does still scare me constantly, you know, going back to humility as an important trait in investors. I think that my understanding of how hard the space can be, but also why I deserve to be here is really important. And I didn't, again, come upon that, that learning on my own. I have mentors and, and now great founders who encourage me to continue, and that is important. But it, it's taken a lot of work of understanding why I left behind the career. I worked really hard to build, To do the work I'm doing now. And and as long as I still feel like I'm living in my purpose, like living truly in the space of why why I'm here right now, and I very much do, I feel like everything else is going to make sense. We're going to make mistakes and we've made them and we'll make more. But I think that I understand my role and myself and my strengths enough and my, again, why I'm here to know that this was the right move. So the self-talk gets me out of a lot of those moments of just be so much easier if I was still in my desk job and still doing the Nike thing, working with all the people I've worked with for 18 years. But again, like I don't want that feeling. I want the feeling I have now of closing my laptop at the end of every day, feeling like I learned 1800 new things. <laughs>
0: Does your brain hurt (laughs) sometimes? Like, it's like
1: I'm a student again, and it's awesome. I wouldn't trade it.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think... You know, very similar to me when I was in corporate, I think also what you did is like having these, whether it's like side hobbies or passions that kind of open these doors that you didn't even know existed, right? I mean, even with me, when I left finance into tech, I saw some friends in tech. I started going to networking events and I was like, wow, there's this whole other world out there. And that's really when I fell into startup life. And now I can't even look back in corporate. So I think it's so important to foster that in any way you can. And you never know where it could lead you even if you're doing well in your job, just to kind of dabble in different things. And another thing I wanted to bring up in your story is you still took the leap despite you being scared and fearful. And like you said, you you still feel that. I mean, I feel that all the time, but that doesn't hold you back from taking that step. And once you do it, right, I'd love to get your thoughts. Like you do build more confidence and that feeling you have is just amazing. It's so much more powerful, But I just, I love that about your story because you're still scared. You're still learning. You're still figuring things out, but that doesn't stop you from continuing to build this fun and invest in great founders.
1: The weirdest thing about this chapter of my career, honestly, because I love the space. So I'm still in health and wellness. I trust my instincts here. I also know what my blind spots are. So hopefully I can not miss opportunities because I think I'm an expert because I've grown up in this space and I still, I love the community. I feel like my relationships having worked at Nike are really beneficial to our portfolio companies. I actually spent six months as interim chief marketing officer at Aura Ring, one of our portfolio companies oh, last year, which was really validating for me. Like just knowing that a company trusted me enough to kind of come in and be with them. I will forever be grateful for that opportunity. Aura was actually our very first investment. So we've been with them since 2019.
0: Incredible company.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We love them. I think for me, there was a moment there of like, okay, I can, again, I'm not your classic investor, but the fact that you're signaling to me that I have something valuable enough to invite me in to be part of your team means I must be living in a place where I'm fulfilling that, again, that purpose. And so- the funny thing about investing is that you don't really know if you're any good at it for a period of time. Like you, you probably experienced this in your corporate chapter. Like I, I'm used to constant feedback, self assessments every quarter. I'm getting feedback from my peers and my manager and my team on how I'm doing as a leader. Here, it's a bit different. You have to seek it out. You know, we have to obviously ask our LPs how they feel we're doing, which we do regularly. But I think it's really important to feel like you're constantly in service of your portfolio companies. I want each of the founders of our 13 companies to feel like, yes, Next Ventures has added something really unique to our trajectory. We're glad they're here. We're glad to have them on our cap table. We trust them. And that happens over time. And that, for me, is where I've been getting most of my joy and most of the acknowledgement that we're doing well, because until you have a Jesse Draper story, which I aspire to, you know, like you just don't know whether you're any good, but we're starting to get some great signals. We've had two exits already. We have Aura, SteadyMD, Outside, a few companies that are just growing at an exponential rate. So knock on wood, we can talk in five years and (laughs) I can say, guess what? I I think we're actually good at this, but right now it's about the little bits of feedback we get along the way from our founders and portfolio companies.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, it really resonates with me. You're right. In the corporate environment, you have these goals. When you surpass them, you get good feedback. You get promoted. You get more money, right? But when you are, whether it's starting a fund like you and investing or a business like me, you don't have that feedback too too often around you. And that actually was a big adjustment for me because you're like, am I doing a good job? And I was kind of conditioned to always kill it for other people and you're now at the helm of creating your own destiny and no one's telling you like you're doing a great job yasmin which is why i think so much of just creating anything goes back to mindset and like making sure you're taking time out of the day to reset and making sure you're in a good place but like you said if you create a life that's full of service right for you it's like how do i make sure my portfolio companies are doing well and for me it's all the customers you know that one woman who reaches out to me that says you've changed my life like that is game changing for me. And anytime I feel anxious, or I'm not re- sure what the right path is, I just go back to like, how do I serve and help a woman who was in my position who was struggling with hormonal imbalances. And it always centers me. So I think, you know, that's something that you do well in your life. And it kind of helps the helps you ease anxiety and the fear of being in this new world. Um And you get the right feedback. And to be honest, like, I feel like now I'm so confident in what we're doing. I just want to share it with the world because there's so many women I'm seeing, you know, change. So it's um it's a good way to think. One thing I'd love to get your your thoughts on as someone who, you know, has had such an amazing career in branding. And I know brand is such a and what I'm learning with my business, brand is such a big world, right? It's not like one specific thing that defines branding. But what advice or tips do you have for women who might be building their business when it comes to brand?
1: Every founder, if you're building a SaaS enterprise company, a B2B platform, should be thinking about her company as a brand. I think that that's so important. And I know brand, this was actually a big learning for me. Again, growing up in a company that is a brand marketing organization, Nike is an incredible brand that makes products, experiences, services for athletes. And that bias does not exist, as you probably know, in the tech startup space. Marketing is kind of an afterthought. Performance marketing is very important. But the idea of building a brand that will deliver lifetime value to a consumer who you have to know really well isn't a muscle a lot of people in the startup space have. And so regardless of whether a company is de- you know designing and developing a DTC brand, or not, I think it's important for founders to think about her company as a brand, because that then gets you into the questions that you clearly ask, which I think are so important. Who am I building this thing for? Why is that consumer going to pay for that thing? And how will I know when her or his needs as consumers change so that I can continue to evolve my my business to meet her needs? Hmm. That and you have that instinct as a founder already, which is really, really important because when you make decisions based on your own ideas or your own instincts or your board or your investors, you're probably making the wrong decisions. But if you're making the decision first because you know your consumer who you built your company for so well because it's a brand, you're going to make better decisions for your company. I really believe that. And so, the way that I think about brand building is something that elicits emotion. You know, when you build a brand, I saw this play out over the last two years very clearly within our portfolio and the world we we live in now as investors because a lot of brands that had not done the work of understanding why they exist and why they are lucky to serve the consumers they serve struggled between COVID, this latest chapter of, Black Lives Matter, and all the social impact and environmental issues that leaders need to navigate, if you have not built a brand that has values embedded in that brand, the last two years were probably really tough for you. And I think that's another good reason for founders to think about her, companies, her company as a brand, because it then gives you the understanding of how to talk to your community about values, how to start to walk the walk of meeting or exceeding their expectations of you as a leader and your company as a brand. I just think that that mindset is really important. So even if you're building a back and napkin concept, if you can think about it as more than a feature or a transactional business, but a brand, it just takes you into that mindset of then serving a consumer. Talking about a values orientation, which if you're serving a younger consumer is going to be a non-negotiable, it already is. So I think that you'll be more likely to be credible with your company if you're thinking about the brand you're building. And I know that's hard. I know it's hard when you have employees and you're just trying to keep the lights on. You've got a lot of investors that may or may not be placing value on this idea of social responsibility, but i think that if you're serving a consumer who's going to expect that from you it's really important for your investors to get you comfortable with talking about those things as a founder
0: i love this because i am you know the first to admit the world of branding i didn't even know it did, my background is more finance operations and i feel actually lucky that the company was built based on my own need and the problems i wanted to solve so kind of the branding came naturally in terms of really understanding who the consumer was, because I was the consumer. But you mentioned something which was interesting is also understanding how your brand and company evolves, right? Even for us, when we launched we had a different voice, right? And a different kind of understanding. And we noticed that there's so many other women who were interested in our product. And it was really a matter of having conversations with them and understanding because brands can evolve, especially when you're so new, right? Like I'm all about putting a good product out there in the market, just to test like an MVP. Like, are you, who's your customer? Are they really resonating with your voice and messaging? And, you know, we've been around for six, seven months and the concept of brand completely makes sense to me now of why it's so important, right? Like, I I didn't even know what it was, to be frank. Um, But it is incredibly important. And like you said, it could evolve. And it's so important for you as a founder to kind of take tabs on that. And it's um, really fulfilling too, I I think versus just like, straight marketing, performance marketing, ad spend. I'm like, I don't enjoy that. It's not for me, at least at this stage, not as fun. So I think that's such great points that you're sharing
1: what well, it, it bodes well for you as a founder and a CEO, because that connection with the community you're building your brand for will get you out of bed, yes, <laughs> on the toughest days, right? Whereas I don't know, the board you're working on behalf of or the the, I don't know, the financial component of how you measure success, which is really important may not always be enough. I feel that founders who will inevitably go through challenges, you will, and I'm sure you already have, are best set up to overcome those challenges when they're motivated by a deep and very meaningful idea of who they're building this company in service of. So, Whether you profess to understand brand marketing or not, you think like a brand marketer.
0: Yeah. And you know, this actually reminds me, I have a little hack. I don't know if this is going to be helpful for anybody, but I'll share it. I don't actually don't think I've shared it on the podcast. But before I launched the podcast, and I now do the same thing with my company, Bia, I take screenshots, any great DMs or text messages or emails I get about what I'm building it, I take a screenshot, I put it in a album on my phone. And anytime I feel like I'm going through a rough time, or I'm you know, thinking about why I started, I always go look at those photos and how I'm making an impact. And it just really helps a lot. So, you know, I highly, highly recommend anyone listening to do that. It's been a a great uh, motivator, especially when you're so early building a business and you're not really sure how it's going to go. I love that. <laughs>
1: yeah, I love that. I've always had a praise folder on my desktop. Oh, Tell me more. What is that's great? What is what what you put in there? It could be what you've just described. It can be a great email from a a customer or consumer. It could be a note from a mentor that I really needed to receive or hear when I did. It can be things that just make me feel like I'm on the right path. It could be a photo. It could be a picture of me and Joni or a picture of my sister. You know, it's like a digital mood board of grounding me in everything's going to be okay you deserve to be here you're doing a great job and so I've always had it when I was at Nike at a praise folder and man there I mean there were plenty of times when I was like I'm sucking so bad right now and go into my praise folder and be like oh okay I might still have messed that one thing up, but I, otherwise I'm doing okay. Like, it's just so easy to see the thing in front of you that you just messed up yeah, and have that consume you. But having a place that could be, again, like your circle of trust, your mentors, it could be those emails that you receive from your customers. But I think having a place you can go to psychologically to remind you of all the great things you've done and why you need to be here.
0: Oh my gosh, I love that. I actually love a praise folder. I think I'm going to start doing that on my computer and call it that, Melanie. I love it. I love everything about it. That's great. Well, you know, another question I'd love to ask you, you know, being in this VC space, now meeting so many different founders, advising founders, what would you say would be, and I ask this question a lot with investors on my podcast, like one to three things that really stand out to you personally when you are meeting with a founder that you might potentially be investing in?
1: We've covered some of this. And I love that we have so naturally um, during this conversation. One is the self-awareness. Has she done the work on herself? And how comfortable is she in her own skin? Is she comfortable talking about failure? Is she comfortable talking about her weaknesses and blind spots with an investor? And I know that not every investor creates an environment of safety for that conversation. And I would say to any founder who has experienced that, then maybe that investor doesn't deserve to invest in your company. Because again, these are long relationships and if you can't meet them in a really safe, true way and talking about where you need help, I don't know if they're gonna be there for you in the way you deserve. So that's one I always look for. It's a very intangible thing. Like how comfortable is she talking about what she's amazing at and celebrating those things? Cause that's why she's building this company paired with the places where she's going to need help as she grows. I think two is the asking for help piece. How comfortable is she and does she have this network of advisors, personal board members, peers uh, that she leans on to support the growth of her company? And there are plenty of founders who are individual contributors. I think as an investor, when we have decided to invest in that founder, despite knowing that founder is not going to be able to scale her leadership across a large organization. It just means we need to be prepared to work with her on a successor earlier in the process. So just know as a founder that when you're talking to investors, they're vetting you as CEO for a period of time. Do you actually want to be CEO? A lot of founders have great ideas and then are stoked to bring in someone who can <laughs> run the business day in, day out. And by the way, that is so okay. But I think that that's important. Really understanding, are you willing to ask for help? Because those types of leaders have more durability, have more longevity uh, leading their organizations than those individual contributors. I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to make all the decisions. That Just you burn out, you make mis- more mistakes than you need to make. And then I guess the third would be, and, and this is so true for you as a founder, is there some very personal reason why you built the thing you're building? I talk to a lot of founders who want an exit. I want them to have an exit too. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see returns until that exit happens. But if that's what you share with me on our first call, I worry again about how you are going to feel in the, the hard times, those dark days when the exit is the thing that motivates you versus serving a consumer who has a problem that you think is a big problem that needs to be solved that you are uniquely suited to solve as a founder like it i just feel like that you know really telling your personal story as a founder and why you built your company is really important and if it is for an exit maybe just don't share it on the first call because <laughs> 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 i i do think a lot of investors will see that as maybe not a positive signal of your commitment to the thing you're building.
0: Just from my limited knowledge of being around founders in the startup space, I feel like if you, to your point, start a business with just right the exit in mind, it will also impact the way you make decisions and also the way you build partnerships and relationships. And it's not what I've seen not really like authentic and helpful. I don't know if I'm explaining that correctly, but I just don't think it's the best motivator or the only motivator that you should have when starting a business. Cause I feel like your decision-making skills aren't always the best if that's it. But on the flip side, you know, for example, my biggest motivation in building a business is to create a massive company and inspire other women to do the same, whether that's investing hiring women. I love that I've get so much joy bringing in people into our business, I realized that recently, and making an impact, right. So that's another way of thinking about like an exit or liquidity event or building a massive business. So I think it's just the energy you have around it. And the motivation is so important. And to your point, if you're just thinking about like, the money, it's really hard. And I've been there. I've been there in a business before Bia. And it's a completely different energy that I don't think is helpful in running like a real sustainable business because it's a long-term game which I'm sure you know you see and you live every day.
1: I think VCs are part of the problem. I think there are plenty of VCs who just want you to hear you know what that exit strategy is. And I don't know, like I I wish we would also ask like, why did you build this? And is this a is there a personal story connected to this? And is the exit alone going to again, motivate you to stay with this company and build over time and make the right decisions. I think you bring up a really good point. I think if it's only the exit motivating you as a founder, you will make different decisions that won't be the right decisions for your customer all the time.
0: It's interesting how you mentioned sometimes like the VC world stereotypically might be kind of pushing that narrative. But who do you think from your perspective, shouldn't be raising money from VC., because again, you know, a lot of what we see in the press is this company raises three million dollars, 10 million dollars, and you think that might be the only way to build a business. Um, so I'd love to hear like, who do you think might not be the right fit for VC. funding, or might not need it, frankly?
1: VC. Capital allows a founder to grow her company faster and sometimes get access to things that would be harder to access without that capital. Meaning not just being able to you know, onboard talent and build more, let's say technology into her company and innovation into her company. But like sometimes great VCs and the capital that comes with them brings things that are really hard to access on your own, whether it's knowledge, experience, some sort of hard skill, that is really critical to the success of your company that you can't acquire on your own. So if if as a founder you feel like you are there or you want to scale quickly and you feel like you don't have access to other really necessary components of what you're going to need to grow your business successfully, then explore VC. But it is not necessary for every founder. I think it's important to also celebrate the bootstrapping stories. They do tend to take longer. So there's like a patience mindset, again, back to self-awareness. Like, is this a 10-year end game? Is it five? Is it, you know, your children do inherit this business from you? Like, and and as a founder, you deserve the right to change your mind. So please do so, because there's no one script that any founder should be working off of through her entire like trajectory running a company. I think that that's really important to remember but it again like there are as you know plenty of strings that come with vc money and again there's that expectation of growth on a timeline a level of reporting often vcs that lead rounds will want a board seat do you want them on your board <laughs> and are there other ways to get that kind of access to intellectual capital and experience and ad- advising that doesn't require taking vc money i think I think it's also important to know that once you start raising, you are kind of always raising. And some people love raising. I I find those people to be a complete mystery.
0: (laughs) Yeah, We've had a lot of founders come on and very successful companies are like, I just despise fundraising, (laughs) but I have to do it every two years. Yeah, we've heard that a lot. It's a necessary
1: thing. It gets easier over time, obviously, but... I don't know. Like I, we fundraised for next ventures, and it was excruciating. And we're talking. And by the way, it's all friends, like all peers and mentors and colleagues. So, but you know, once you start that cycle of raising venture money and capital, it is you sign up for that again and again and again, and and that's okay. Uh, And if you have great investors from the outset, they're going to want to stay with you and they're going to want to exercise their pro rata and their right to follow on and it becomes exponentially easier. But that first step is like sort of an irrevocable first step. And I wish more founders knew that. Like when you raise that first price round, okay, here we go. Like now you're on this path. And are you good with that? And are you surrounded by people who understand how to help this be, you know, less distracting for you? I talk to a lot of founders who feel like they spend more time fundraising than running their businesses. That's not the goal.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really helpful, good lay of the land for anyone who is considering or just wanting to learn more about VC and the right fit. And you know, the last question I have is: so much of you know, VCs, you guys are doing so much due diligence on the companies. Do you see? companies doing the same with you? Or would you wish that you see more of that? Like would love to get your thoughts on that? Yes, every founder should do diligence
1: on her investors and potential investors. And more of them are now. That is actually a thing that has changed a lot in the last three years in my observation, where I, I think there was a period where any money was good money. And there's so much power and influence that's placed in the hands of the VC, of the investor, when really the only thing they have is capital. They, every investor is going to say that they bring value. <laughs> that's where, as a founder, you should do your research. Make sure that they are open to you talking to the founders of their existing portfolio companies, certainly the ones if they're taking board roles where they have a board seat. They should, as an investor, be opening you up as a founder to their network to do that work on them. If there's any signaling that they're not open to that, that should be a flag. Mm. So I, I think it's happening more now because it's frankly a more competitive space for investors like us. There is so much capital out there and there are a lot of big players, people who don't do much diligence and can write a really large check immediately. Whereas for us, a $50 million fund, we spend the time, like I want to build a relationship with you. I want to understand your business. I want to make sure you are spending time understanding us and me and where this is going to work or not work for you. That takes time and time often means losing out on opportunities as an investor. So there's, I, I think for founders, it's such an awesome time to be in this space because you have so much power you really do and should feel like you get to choose who is lucky enough to invest in your company and you should do the homework on every single person.
0: Yeah. And there is such amazing found you know, investors like you and we've had Jesse and Nisha on our podcast. I'm like, there are such amazing women investors out there that I think there's, you know, they'd be great fits. So I'm excited for you, Melanie, and everything you guys are building at Next Ventures. I can't wait to continue to see you thrive and see all the amazing companies you guys bring in your portfolio. But it was such an honor to have you join us. It was a lot of fun, Melanie. Thank you. Thank you. This was
1: amazing. I really appreciate you having me.